Some of the most ancient scriptures of Hinduism, Judaism, and Buddhism make prominent mention of a gem we know as zircon. It's variously called jargon, gomeda, hyacinth, and more, but they all refer to the same lightly colored precious stone. In Hinduism, it's mentioned as one of the nine most precious gemstones that exist, alongside diamonds, rubies, and others. A Buddhist account describes the Exalted One's Bodhi tree as being adorned with a garland of zircon. Modern times have taken the shine off zirconium-based gemstones. The element is popularly known in its form called cubic zirconia, a brilliant stone that looks similar to diamond and is sometimes used to make jewelry that's not so expensive. It's a strange loop that's responsible for cubic zirconia's poor reputation. It's an inexpensive gemstone because people don't value it. And people don't value it because it's inexpensive. It's unfortunate that Element 40 is known as the one that's pretty and cheap, because there's so much more going on. Zirconium is an element at the heart of some of the most intensely hot, turbulent, and radioactive environments we have ever seen. You're listening to the Episodic Table of Elements, and I'm T.R. Appleton. Each episode, we take a look at the fascinating true stories behind one element on the periodic table. Today, we're getting steamed over zirconium. Those holy texts are ancient, sure, but compared to some of the zircon on Earth, they're still hot off the presses. The oldest scriptures were written around 4,000 years ago, but the oldest zircons we've found are 4.4 billion years old. That's almost as old as the Earth itself, minerals that formed just as the ocean of lava that covered the globe was starting to cool. Zircon is so durable and resilient that these stones have remained internally unchanged for as long as they've existed. This sturdiness becomes less surprising when you glance upward. Just above element 40 on the periodic table is the similarly strong titanium. Zircon is also a stone that naturally includes a fair amount of uranium in its lattice. With a half-life around 4.5 billion years, Conveniently, scientists can date samples of zircon by cracking them open and checking how much of that uranium has decayed into lead. It's very similar to the carbon dating we discussed in episode 6, but on a much longer timescale. Coincidentally, the German chemist Martin Heinrich Klaproth discovered both zirconium and uranium in 1789 from two entirely different mineral samples. There's no way he could have known, but the special relationship between these two elements would only grow stronger over time. Most of the pure zirconium metal that gets produced today, you see, winds up as uniquely valuable infrastructure coursing through nuclear power plants. 
The properties that allow zircon stones to weather 4 billion years of geology are the same that make zirconium the metal of choice for the pipes that carry liquid coolant through a nuclear reactor. Namely, its extreme resistance to corrosion. But zirconium has another benefit that makes it uniquely suited to the task. It is practically impervious to the onslaught of neutron radiation that is a necessary byproduct of the fission of uranium. We have discovered no other material yet that acts as such effective armor against neutron radiation. And that is why zirconium metal is also used to clad the outside of the all-important fuel rods inside a nuclear reactor. The fuel rods are basically long cans stuffed full of uranium oxide pellets, which heat up, boiling water to make steam that in turn drives the turbines that generate electricity. But it's really important that the fuel rods don't get too hot. The radiation-proof, corrosion-resistant zirconium piping allows coolant to keep the fuel rods at a finely controlled temperature. But while Element 40 excels in this high-heat, highly radioactive environment, it's not indestructible. A violent natural disaster could easily cause things to break down, especially at a plant that had been poorly maintained for years. Such was the case on March 11th, 2011, when one of the most powerful earthquakes ever recorded struck at 2.46pm local time, just off the coast of Japan. So strong was this earthquake that it measurably caused the planet to wobble on its axis and thrust the island of Honshu 2.4 meters eastward. That would qualify as a catastrophe at any point in human history. An earthquake such as this doesn't just cause direct damage to people and structures on land. It also generates a series of tremendously powerful waves, called a tsunami. Tsunamis don't just look like big versions of your regular ocean surf. In the deep ocean, a tsunami can travel swiftly, over 800 kilometers per hour, yet silently, passing beneath seafaring vessels completely undetected. It's only when the tsunami approaches shallow water that the situation turns ugly. Right before it makes landfall, the water at the shore can recede by hundreds of meters, turning the shallows into dry land. Meanwhile, the wave slows down, but grows taller as it approaches the shore. Within a few minutes, it comes rushing back toward land as an unstoppable wall of water. This particular tsunami may have brought waves as tall as 40 meters high, which traveled as far as 10 kilometers inland. Already weakened by the quake, this surge of water caused hundreds of thousands of buildings to collapse. And then, the force of that massive amount of water quickly retreating back to the ocean 
did even further damage. It was unspeakable. Thousands of people died, and millions of homes were left without electricity or water. And at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant, the disaster was just beginning. Immediately following the earthquake, the power plant's walls began to crack, gas tanks exploded, and pipes began to burst. Suffice to say, things were not working as intended. The coolant could no longer moderate the fuel rods, and as the temperature climbed higher, both the zirconium coolant pipes and the fuel rod cladding began to swell. Above 1200 degrees Celsius, the zircaloy began to burn, reacting with the water to produce highly flammable hydrogen gas. Multiple explosions wreaked havoc across several buildings, and the uranium fuel began to liquefy. It was literally a meltdown. The scene took days to unfold, days that were full of confusion and fright. It was the worst nuclear accident since the Chernobyl disaster in 1986. Between the earthquake, the tsunami, and the nuclear meltdown, nearly half a million people needed to evacuate the area. Years later, the site is still disastrously radioactive, and hundreds of millions of dollars have been spent attempting to mitigate the contamination of groundwater. Many of the evacuees have not, and probably never will, return to their homes. And deep inside the ruins of the Fukushima Daiichi power plant, hundreds of tons of uranium fuel are cautiously probed by experimental robots. Experts with an optimistic bent estimate that the full cleanup will require decades of effort. Yet, it could have been far worse. While it's an environmental catastrophe, 18 casualties have been attributed to the nuclear meltdown, and only one death. Wherever the government was unable to provide assistance to the survivors, civilians stepped in to help, including a surprisingly dedicated contingent of the Yakuza, Japan's most infamous organized criminals. Tokyo remained safe, avoiding a citywide evacuation of 13 million people. And critically, the reactor cores at Fukushima remained relatively protected from fire and explosions, which means far less radioactive material was released. So much went wrong at Fukushima. A lack of oversight, poor maintenance, incompetence, and lies meant to protect the company in charge illuminate part of the story. By contrast, the zirconium in chemical pipelines and fuel rod cladding lasted as long as possible, only failing after the disaster was well underway. That may have been Element 40's finest hour but it pops up in all kinds of extreme environments. 
Its high durability gives it jobs in jet engines and spaceships' heat shields. The U.S. military researched the possibility of manufacturing internal combustion engines made entirely of zirconia ceramics, no metal, which would require neither lubricants nor coolants. That never came to fruition, but did result in new materials that can be stronger and sharper than steel. Now the element is used in scissors, power tools, and golf clubs. It turns out that the companies that manufacture golf clubs love incorporating obscure elements in their product. Rarely does that make for a better club, but it does make it sound like it's worth a lot of money. Any of those would make a fine addition to your element collection, or you could instead choose to startle with a bright, expertly cut stone of zircon or cubic zirconia. They're truly inexpensive, but lovely. Besides, you're not trying to convince someone they're diamonds. Carbon is so trivially easy to acquire anyway. If you're the jet-setting type, though, you might want to fetch some of that ancient Australian crust for yourself. A sample from the Jack Hills dating back to the Earth's first days would certainly make for a notable sample. But it's also worth mentioning that nearby, on Australia's eastern coasts, there are a few beaches with sands composed almost entirely of zirconium oxides. After spending the past few weeks traipsing about tiny towns in northern Europe, that might be just the kind of vacation you need. Thanks for listening to the Episodic Table of Elements. Music is by Kai Engel. Listener nominations are open starting today for the People's Choice Podcast Awards. If you would like to help the Episodic Table of Elements get on the slate of contenders, visit episodictable.com or the show notes for today's episode at episodictable.com slash ZR. Next time, sadly, we'll turn to Niobium. Until then, this is T.R. Appleton reminding you, however you do it, to keep cool. <laughs>